So a number of you enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And one of the main characters is Aslan, the lion, lord of the whole wood. And there are several scenes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that reveal his true might. And among them are scenes where Aslan roars. Like the time when the white witch questions his integrity. And Aslan answers with a roar that sends the witch running for her life. And then there's the time when the stone table cracks. And Aslan roars. And Lewis writes that they saw all the trees in front of him stand before the blast of his roaring as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. And then there's also the time when Aslan arrives for the battle, and with a roar that shook all Narnia from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, he flung himself on the white witch and ended her. Earlier in the book, though, we learned something more about Aslan's roar, something that strikes a chord with all of our longings. Mr. Beaver points the children to an old rhyme. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. And at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, Winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. We read that and find ourselves wishing, if that could only be true, if there was someone like that who, with a roar, could make everything right again, good fantasy will do that. What if I said there is someone like that? What if I said the Bible speaks of God roaring like that? That's not to say that God is a lion, but the way He pounces on enemies, the way He strikes terror in the greatest warrior, the way He jealously protects His own. A roaring lion is a fitting metaphor the Bible uses. Joel chapter 3 promises a day when the Lord Himself will roar, and when He does, all will be made right. Only the Bible is no fairy tale. God's Word is real. So I want you to read with me, starting in Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem... I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. 
What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and I have, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth. Quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip, drip sweet. Wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So in this chapter, we see two great things that happen when the Lord roars. We see final judgment on God's enemies. That's verses 1 to 16. And then we see final restoration for God's people. Final judgment on God's enemies and final restoration for God's people. So let's look first at the final judgment on God's enemies. The Lord says in verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of 
Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. Now in Joel's day, the men went to war in the valley. Joel is taking that image of warriors gathering in a valley for battle and he's using it to portray the final judgment day. He even names the valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, if you're speaking Texan, means Yahweh judges. Yahweh judges. So it's the valley where Yahweh judges. But his focus isn't geography. There's not a specific valley known on the map as the valley of Jehoshaphat. He even gives it another name in verse 14. He calls it there the valley of decision. So we're likely looking at a symbol here. And some of that symbolism becomes clearer when we remember a story from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where you have the Moabites and the Ammonites and a few other nations, and they have partnered with one another and teamed up against Israel. Multitudes gather to declare war on Judah and the people are undone. There is no way with all these nations gathered against them that they can win this battle. The king ruling at that time is named Jehoshaphat. And much like Joel leads the people to cry out to the Lord in a very desperate situation, Jehoshaphat leads the people to cry out to the Lord. He assembles all the people and they gather together and they cry for the Lord's mercy. God then answers their prayers. All of these armies, they gather in this valley for war against God's people. And while the people are singing and praising the Lord, the Lord sets an ambush against all these nations in the valley and He defeats all of them and then leads His people into a time of rest and plenty. In other words, we we have a scene much like the one ending the prophecy of Joel. Nations who hate God's people, they gather for war in a valley where God steps in to judge them decisively and then leads his people into a time of rest and plenty. In other words, when you read... 
valley of Jehoshaphat, it's not so important that you're able to identify an earthly location. That's not the point. The point is that God will have his day of judgment and it'll be like that time before when he wiped out his enemies and then led his people into a time of rest. And Joel is drawing from that as a way to encourage the people to pray, isn't he? In the same way the Lord responded then, he can respond now. So, that's what the Valley of Jehoshaphat is about. A day will come when God, like he did back then, will wipe out his enemies on behalf of his people. Why, though, will God judge the nations? Why will he judge the nations? Because the nations are guilty. Okay, for starters... We see that they mistreat the Lord's people. Verse 2 says, I will enter into judgment on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations. And then you see down in verse 6, Tyre and Sidon sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. But these are the people that belong to the Lord. He calls them my people. He calls them my heritage. He rescued them. He set his love on them. He intends to bless the world through them. He is jealous for them, like we saw in chapter 2. But the nations humiliate them. God, so what we're seeing here is that God so identifies with his people that to mistreat them is to set yourself against God himself. We kind of get some of that language in the New Testament too, don't we? Like when he encounters Paul on the Damascus Road and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To mistreat God's people is to set yourself against God himself. The nations also seek to destroy God's kingdom. He says, they have divided up my land. Now, for a time in Israel's history, the land of Canaan is where God chose to place his name. The land represented God's kingdom on earth. And so by dividing it up, the nations do not build God's kingdom. They try to tear it down. They're also guilty of using the Lord's possessions to serve their own gods. They use the Lord's possessions to serve their own gods. Look at verse 5. You have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. Now, under the Old Covenant, God set apart treasures in the land for his own worship. Right? The gold and the temple and and, and whatnot. He, He set these things apart for his own worship. The nations don't care. They plaster their walls to impress others with their might. Look at us and look at our might. They use God's treasures to draw attention to their own glory instead of drawing attention to His glory. And then topping off their guilt, the nations disregard the vulnerable to satisfy their cravings. They disregard the vulnerable 
to satisfy their cravings. Verse 3, they have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Complete disregard for the sanctity of life. A boy for a hooker and a girl for a hangover. The children, the most vulnerable in society, they bear God's image. They are persons to be valued and protected, but these nations sacrifice them on the altar of their pleasures. Does this sound familiar? As one writer put it, the true measure of any society is the way it treats those who cannot protect themselves. The nations are guilty. And God sees their evil and divine retribution will come. And at times that divine retribution comes in the present. For instance, he gives us an example in verses 4 to 8. Where he says, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Verse 8, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away. So we have the enslavers here who are becoming enslaved. And God is going to mete out this punishment. In fact, so it's kind of like the enslavers become the slave, and the... the, the um, Tyre and Sidon had sold the Jews to the Greeks in the northeast uh, and, or the nor- northwest, and the Lord is returning them. He's going to sell them into slavery in the southwest. So you get this, these opposite extremes, kind of reveals eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're going to get what you deserve. Okay? These nations talk big, but God says, what are you to me? And then he wipes them off the map, basically. And those judgments fell on Tyre and Sidon and Philistia in history. But they're only an example of how all nations will fall under God's judgment at the end of history. And that's where Joel heads next, to God's final day of judgment. Through a series of images, we we learn what that day is like. It'll be like a summons to war. Verse 9 says, Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You might recognize that that is the opposite language that Jeremiah and Micah use. Uh, They say, beat your... uh, swords into plowshares and so forth as a way of saying the day of peace has arrived. Joel is using it to say the day of war has arrived and it is total war. Let the weak say, I am a warrior, hasten and come. The nations have no choice. They must come. But within this summons from God is a deep irony. You see, by telling them, you better beat your plowshares into swords and turn your pruning hooks into spears and you ever you better get the weak too gather all you can it's it's his way of saying that when you come you better bring all you got 
And then the irony continues in verse 12. That day will also be like a great trial. He says, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now that is an interesting way to fight, isn't it? Now, if you, if you notice this pattern in Scripture, prophets will tell you, right? They will tell, they will call, there will be a call to war. And then they'll describe everybody showing up. And then they'll describe what happened on the battlefield. Who won, how many bodies are laying where. And here you get the call to war, you get everybody gathered. But there's no battle. It's missing. The only thing that happens is God sits. This is Joel's way of saying the nations don't have a chance. They can't challenge his authority. It's not like he gathered them to give them a winning shot, he gathered them to preside over their trial. To announce their fate. Verse 13 then compares that day to a great harvest. He says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. And if we interpreted this in light of Revelation 14, it seems that God works through his angelic host to accomplish this, this judgment. Regardless, though, the imagery is awful. God's enemies are compared to grapes filling up a wine vat. And he tramples them down underfoot until their blood flows into the streets. Isaiah 63 even speaks of their lifeblood spattering his garments, staining his apparel for the day of vengeance was in God's heart. But again, this isn't arbitrary. The judgment is deserved. It says their evil is great. Verses 14 to 16 then finish the picture. It is a day of final verdict. Multitudes. Multitudes. In Hebrew, when you rep- that's how you say something. There's a lot of people there. You just repeat it. Like, if something's dark, it's, it's black, black. Multitudes, multitudes, gobs and gobs of people. In the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice. Some translations, he thunders his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. When God the warrior shows up, the entire cosmos shakes. But notice also he he thunders a verdict from Jerusalem. The valley of decision isn't what the nations decide about God. It's what God decides about them. So you could also translate this as the valley of decision. Of God's verdict. 
When the day of the Lord comes, it'll be too late for anyone to be making decisions about the Lord. All will be over. The Lord's gavel will fall and his judgment will be final. Again, we're reminded of the question when we see these images in in chapter 3. We're reminded of the question that he posed back in chapter 2, verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? But that's not the only thing that happens when the Lord roars from Zion. The Lord will roar against His enemies, but in doing so, final restoration will also come for God's people. Final restoration will also come for God's people. Now, we need to be clear about something here. It's not that God's people are less sinful than the rest of the nations. I mean, you only have to read chapters 1 and 2 of Joel to figure that out. God set himself against Judah as well. In fact, if you go on and read Amos, Amos talks about the Lord roaring against Judah. So it's not their own righteousness that makes them God's people. What makes them God's people is God's choice to show them mercy. Once they deserved His wrath, but these are the ones who called on the name of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 32. These are the ones who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and they cry out for God's mercy. These are the ones that God calls to Himself. These are the ones that that Joel talked about who would receive the Lord's outpoured spirit. These are the ones who have entered Zion by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, for those united to Jesus, the Lord's judgment is over. He has poured out His wrath on Jesus in their place. If you call on the name of the Lord, your judgment will be taken care of as well. For those trusting in Jesus, this judgment doesn't await you anymore that we just read about in verses 1 to 16. Your final restoration awaits you. And what does that include? Well, one, it includes God being your forever refuge. God will be your forever refuge. End of verse 16 says, But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And you might be thinking, wait a second, I'm no Israelite, I'm a Gentile, I belong to those nations of verses 1 to 16, and you'd be thinking rightly. But the New Testament tells us that Jesus represents the true Israel. And if you belong to Jesus, you belong to the true Israel. If you belong to Jesus, then these promises are yours. The Lord is your 
forever refuge. He is your hiding place. He is your support in times of trouble. He is your strong tower that you run into and find safety in times of need. He is the one who will shelter you beneath the shadow of his wings forever. He is a rock for your feet. God will also make all things holy. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strength. We're looking at a new Jerusalem here. The Jerusalem we read about earlier wasn't so holy. So we got a new Jerusalem. It's going to be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Now, often we reduce holiness to this idea of moral perfection. But that gets really tricky when you read the Old Testament, and all of a sudden you start seeing that shovels were holy. (laughs) And tongs were holy. Carry carry the things around in in the tabernacle. And pots were holy. The Bible doesn't mean the shovel is morally perfect. The point is that it is set apart exclusively for God and His service. And so for Jerusalem to be called holy here is for the whole city... And everything in it. And all the people in it. For everything to be set apart exclusively for the Lord. That's what happens when God's presence dwells in Zion. The evil goes out and he sanctifies everything in his midst. That's also what happens in your life when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. We call it sanctification. So everything will be holy in the, new, in the New Jerusalem. And he advances that further by saying that there won't even be a stranger passing through. And in this context, stranger stands for the enemies who defile the city. The enemies who do the unholy thing that we read about earlier in, in the chapter. So in the New Jerusalem, nobody will threaten this holiness. Something else. Final restoration includes God will give you an abundant kingdom. God will give you an abundant kingdom. Listen to this imagery. In that day, the mountains shall drip drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. In agrarian society, in a, a Agrarian society, this is crazy talk, right? These are really fat cows producing a lot of milk and vines all over the place, right, for the wine. This, but it, notice the contrast here, mountains, hills, stream beds. He's talking about from the highest parts of the land to the lowest, it will all be plentiful, okay? He's... he's He's also using this Old Covenant language to describe future realities that far surpass 
the old forms, right? He's, he's using this, um, right, to have wine and milk and water flowing was a sign that God's covenant was lifted, I mean, God's curse was lifted completely. The land was no longer crushed. It was, he was just lavishing the blessings on the land, and that's how, how the kingdom will be. In fact, he also adds that a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. A fountain from the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is the temple. What is he talking about? Well, I want you to follow me for just a minute. The Garden of Eden was comparable to a sanctuary. Because that's where the Lord's presence was. And in the midst of the garden was a river that flowed out in all four directions, bringing life to the land. So from the presence of God, the river flows out to bring life in the garden, right? To make everything lush and plentiful. Of course, Adam and Eve get kicked out. And when they do, they don't experience the plush land. Instead, the ground is cursed with thorns and thistles. All because of sin. Then, in step, the prophets, especially Ezekiel 47, and we see that by the Lord's grace, the Lord would make a new sanctuary where He would dwell with His people once more just like he dwelled with them in the garden, and coming from the Lord's presence in the new sanctuary would be a river. A great river. And wherever this river flows from God's presence, it brought new life again to all the places that didn't have life before. In other words, the river of life flowing from the presence of God, spoke of the reversal of God's curse on the world. And Joel is building on this same imagery that Ezekiel does more in depth. The Valley of Shittim is also another symbol pointing to a greater reality. Uh, Shittim means acacias, acacia trees. And several places in Scripture associate these more these these areas where the acacias grow is the land of Moab. In other words, the waters are coming from the house of the Lord, not just to give life to Israel, but to give life to the world. To make the entire world a new Eden. And then one more blessing here. God will avenge his people's blood. God will avenge his people's blood. Verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will, I will avenge their blood Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. 
It's not that the Lord is picking on Egypt and Edom. I mean, he's already mentioned several other nations, hasn't he, in, our, in, in this last chapter. Egypt and Edom are, are functioning as types here. Uh, they, were, they were the well-known enemies of God's people throughout the Old Testament story. And he's picking those up and using them to say the, they're representing enemies of all types, all kinds. En- enemies may, may think that they're getting away with their mistreatment of the Lord's people, but God sees their evil deeds. And when the Lord roars from Zion, true justice will be upheld and God will right all wrongs done to his people. So what a day that will be when the Lord roars from Zion. To play off Lewis's words, wrong will be right when the Lord comes in sight. And at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. So what then does this mean for us? I mean, we've talked a lot about the future. And where God is taking the world, but how should that move us in the present? And first, I want to, we've said this almost every week we've been in Joel, but I'm just going to say it again, call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. I want you to notice that this whole chapter, three, begins with a little word, four. Chapter three, verse one, for behold... And it points backwards to verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. And then again, verse 1. For, behold, those days. In those days. So chapter 3 is basically setting before you two ways to live. You live like the nations and they're evil. And you receive judgment. Or call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Rage against God in the valley of judgment. Or find refuge in God atop Mount Zion. And Joel is teaching us that those who call on the Lord will escape judgment and join God's people in His forever kingdom. So call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Second, stand amazed at God's mercy. Stand amazed at God's mercy here. We belonged to the evil nations. We were like the Gentiles. Ephesians 2 tells us, (laughs) you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, church, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of our evil, every one of us deserves to be in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Every one of us deserves to be cut off from the map and remove far from God's kingdom when his gavel falls. But through the blood of Christ, God has made us part of his people. So by grace, we have been saved, and it is the greatest gift in the world to be saved. So when you read of these nations here, 
I hope it does two things for you. I hope it reminds you of where you once stood without hope. And then I hope it reminds you of the Lord's mercy. Right? We sang it earlier. Lord, why was I a guest? Third, do not follow the nations in their evil. Do not follow the nations in their evil. The nations mistreat the Lord's people. And we must remember that to mistreat God's people is to set ourselves against God Himself. That's something we need to hear even as a church. This is why the apostles speak so sternly to the churches when members start mistreating one another. Is Christ divided? Paul says, in the face of the church, dividing into their little camps, trying to one-up one another. Or later on in the same letter, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. He's talking about the church. We are called to love one another and to build up the body of Christ and to preserve, to make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This also goes hand in hand with building up God's kingdom instead of tearing it down like the other nations try to tear it down. Our words and our deeds and our time, and our resources, and our gifts, all should be used to build up God's church. You see, the church is the kingdom of God on earth. It is where God's king... Where where do you see God's kingdom? Not in Palestine. God is dwelling in His people... And so wherever His people are gathering, there you see God's kingdom. There you see His inheritance. And so how are you building up His kingdom? We should also be careful that we're not using the Lord's possessions to serve other gods and to serve other kingdoms. And to serve our own passions. He gives us what we have to draw others into His praise. To help others in their distress so that they see our good deeds and glorify the Father who is in heaven. He gives us what we have so that we can lead others into worshiping the Lord. If we're using His possessions for purposes other than building His kingdom, then we need to really check ourselves. Also, we must not follow the nations in disregarding the vulnerable to satisfy our cravings. Some things are going to be obvious to a church like you, like standing against abortion. We must stand against abortion and... Utilize various influences we have in life to make sure that's not happening anymore. And that society doesn't continue doing it. Or the people in your circles don't do it. And you're available to help them. 
We must speak up for the children. We also must visit the orphan in their need and seek to do them good by adopting them. And if we can't adopt them, then find ways that we can help others who can adopt them. For those who already have children, let us be careful not to neglect them for our own cravings. And parents, when they come into the room with their questions and their needs, let us not push them away as if they're only a distraction to our entertainment. And they're just or push them away as if they're getting in the way of what we want. In contrast to the nations, the church should be a refuge for children, a place where children find nurture and care and acceptance. The church should be a place where all of the vulnerable in a society, find refuge. Fourth, take heart. God will judge our enemies. And by enemies, I don't mean those who merely disagree with you. Or who oppose you for just any reason. By enemies, I mean those who hate you because they hate Christ. Those who hate you because they hate the way you live for Christ. By enemies, I mean those persecuting the church. By enemies, I mean wolves who sneak in to abuse the sheep and destroy the church. By enemies, I mean those who crush the helpless and spread lawlessness in the streets. It can feel at times like the Lord does not see their evil. We feel it. And we pray with Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You may even be angry by the sins that somebody else has committed against you. You may be discouraged because you see evil people prospering. Nothing's happening to them. You may be brokenhearted by the moral rebellion of our culture and its leaders who slaughter the innocent and who trample God's good designs for humanity underfoot. Joel helps us to take heart and know that the Lord sees And he will roar from Zion, and he will right all wrongs. He will judge our enemies. And this gives us hope for the future. It also means we don't have to avenge ourselves in the present. We can can live peaceably with all, knowing that God will judge. Paul tells us this in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
And then he gives instructions on how to show your enemy mercy. 1 Peter 2.23 also sets before us the example of Jesus to imitate. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Maybe he had Joel chapter 3 in mind. Knowing that God will judge our enemies frees us to lay down our lives for our enemies in the path of love. God will see to it that they are brought to justice. And His justice will be perfect. And it will be executed well and with finality. Lastly, rest in Jesus who brings the final restoration. Rest in Jesus, who brings the final restoration. Joel paints for us a picture of mountains dripping with wine in the new kingdom. Question. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, why do you think Jesus changes the water into wine at the wedding of Cana? And why the best wine? Because he is the Lord bringing the new age. The new age where the mountains will drip with wine. Joel also paints a picture of a river that flows from God's presence and gives life to the world. Question, in John's Gospel, chapter 4, why does Jesus offer the Samaritan woman living water? And why does Jesus say in chapter 7, verse 38 of the same gospel, that anyone who believes in him out of his heart will flow rivers of living water? It's because he is the Lord bringing the life of the new age. Only we don't have to wait for the new age to start experiencing the new life. He offers it to us now through the gift of of the Holy Spirit. And that means that when your broken body fails and doesn't do what you'd like it to do anymore, you can draw from that life of the kingdom now, on your bed, in the hospital. And you can rest in that Jesus is in the process right now of bringing in a new age where you get a new body. And when finances are bare and you feel no lasting security here, you can rest in Jesus who keeps his people secure in Zion. This world might eat up your earthly riches with thieves moth and rust but it cannot take away your heavenly riches when you see civil unrest instead of growing anxious and worried we can turn to Christ and remember that he's preparing it a day when there will be no enemy on the streets to destroy his city Zechariah talks about the children being able to play freely in the streets without fear 
I enjoy woodworking. And sometimes after a long, hard week, it's very restful to get out in the shop and tinker or build something for someone else. But sometimes plans don't go your way. The wood splits and you didn't buy extra. And you start the project and the saw breaks. And you go to Home Depot and the line's a mile long. Your day is done, right? I was telling my wife about this one day, and she said, It's really hard when even the things we turn to for rest in this life are broken. I'm sure you've got things you turn to for rest, and there are moments when they're broken. In those moments, our Father is teaching us to make sure that our rest is in the right place. Nothing on this earth can give us the rest that we truly long for. But in the person and work of Jesus, we will find rest. He gives the rest we truly need and He brings the kingdom where all things will be finally restored in the presence of God. So let's sing about that day before taking the Lord's Supper together. We're going to sing a song about Zion.